This is News from the Peak. I'm Joe Mamlin. Today we welcome James Forsher, who is a documentary filmmaker, a retired professor, and the son of Trudy Forsher, who was an instrumental figure in the creation of the Child Support Program. David Ram hosts the show, and he speaks to James about his life, his career, and his mother's impact on child support. And just a note to our listeners, during this conversation, James does refer to deadbeat dads. Of course, this is an uncomfortable term for us today. We don't subscribe to this idea currently. However, in the context of this story, he's referring to what he calls affluent fathers who are not supporting their kids at a time when there was no real system in place to require them to do so. He's not talking about parents we work with today who often struggle to support their kids due to a variety of issues, and many of which, of course, are trying very hard to overcome these issues and need our help to do so. But rather, this is a story about the history of the program. And some of that history included a time when this was the prevailing notion. And we just hope that the use of this term won't distract you from what is a very compelling story about the origins of the Child Support Program and about an extraordinary woman who was instrumental in creating the program that we all know today. We also get a chance to hear more about James and his career in documentary filmmaking. And we encourage you to please visit our website and look for all the links to more information about him and the work that he's done. Thanks for joining us again today. It's going to be a great show. So stick around and we'll be right back. So if you wouldn't mind kind of just introducing yourself first, um, and then we'll start into some other stuff. Uh, My name is James Forsher. I'm a retired associate professor in communications and a documentary filmmaker, and uh, live uh, outside Seattle on an island. And, you know, that's that's my life in 30 seconds. (laughs) That's great. That's a lot. You know, as we discussed what we're here to discuss is also uh, your mother's life, um, which I think is just sounds from what little I've been able to glean, completely fascinating. Um, I, I I think about as, you know, uh, objectively fascinating as any life can be, I think. Uh, with yeah, all kinds she, of she had a full life. That's an understatement. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I was hoping if you could kind of walk us through and you know tell us a little bit about your mother um her background and maybe some of the things she did um early on and just you know take your time uh, i i would just like to be curious uh, well no need she, to tell the super short version is what i'm saying 
Okay. Um, she was born in uh, Vienna, Austria, um, grew up, um, and um, at six, I think she was 16, when um, Hitler walked in uh, and took over um, Vienna. And um, she was arrested um, shortly. She talked her way out of some nasty um, situations and said to my grandparents, uh, I got to get out of here. So she somehow, even though she'd probably never made a bed in her life, she got a job as a maid in England because that was the only jobs that you know could easily get you out of there. And uh, she she ended up going to England, um, getting fired after a few days because she had attitude and, um, you know, um, not a good fit, uh, was homeless. Um, but she made, you know, she was very um, personable. So she made friends and got my grandparents out, got my uncle out um, in short order. Um, and uh, so we had an American family at the time. So she got affidavits. It took about two years to get the affidavits to get over from England to the U.S., but they made it. So they got here um, in 1940, 41. And uh, my dad, who's also Viennese, uh, and my mom um, met up in New York and they got married. And um, uh, he worked for IBM for many years and then uh, they decided to move to California, so they moved to California in 51 or 52, and I was born there. My brother was born in New York. Um, long story short, my mom just fell in love with Hollywood, so she couldn't get enough about Hollywood. So she um, got my mom, uh, she got my dad and her to go on a show called It Pays to be Married, which is kind of funny, as you'll find out later. Yeah, and they sit there and they talk about how exciting it was to be married to each other. And um, then um, and she got my brother on the Art Linkletter show. Anyway, she got really excited about this. She got on the Groucho show and uh, made a little money there. And she took writing classes. Um, and um, that led to her interviewing Elvis Presley. She had friends of the family who had just signed Elvis, who was just a brand new, like one record at that time. And um, with it, she interviewed him, they, um, Elvis and Colonel Parker liked my mom. And so in uh, August of 1956, she was Elvis Presley's private secretary and stayed in that position till uh, pretty much like January 61, um, you know, during those formative years. And um, um, my dad and her fell out in 58. Um, my dad got jealous of, of the whole Elvis Colonel situation. He couldn't handle it. And um, uh, he wanted a housefrau, and my mom was anything but a housefrau. She she was just like, you know, over uh, over the moon in terms of, of just loving the whole world of Hollywood. And, of course, where she was 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 one of the most unique places to be in Hollywood at the time because it was TV, it was films, it was records, it was all of it. Um, so my parents then went to a three-year battle of divorcing. Colonel Parker didn't want any part of, of a divorce because that was at that time scandalous. And so he fired my mom in 61 because of the divorce. He said, you know, work it out. And she said, well, I can't work it out because he's, you know, I, I want I want nothing to do with him. And so anyway, um, so she then formed a production company with Adolf Zucker II, who was the grandson of founder of Paramount Studios, and they did some early TV shows. And um, anyway, she just had a very colorful life. So 
Um, now, a few years after this, um, she writes with a good friend of hers named Marion Winston, uh, a paper that was published by the Rand Corporation. Marion Winston worked for the Rand Corporation, and so uh, they had the end to be able to get it published. And they both um, had a, uh, an understanding and desire that men who were affluent um, but were not supporting their kids was costing the federal government in terms of welfare and whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so they kind of proved that they did a paper that kind of said these deadbeat dads are causing all types of havoc and it's costing the taxpayers. Um, and so they published that and it got a lot of attention um, to the point of both at the state level and at the um, federal level. And I believe uh, some of the laws that went after deadbeat dads were partly um, written in response to that uh, paper they wrote. I had the opportunity, I was teaching in Austria and led me to meet a um, documentary filmmaker over there. And we joined forces and made an hour documentary because she was Austrian, she was Viennese. And so she was kind of an interesting story um, to German speaking world um, because she's a local girl that did good and had an interesting story. So yeah, so it was a, an hour, you can actually see it on on YouTube, you know, Elvis, oh, yeah. you know. So that's, you know, I mean, her story, um, because she was affiliated with Elvis, she's had all types of Elvis interests and uh, she wrote a diary that was published. You can get that on Amazon, just type in the Love Me Tender Diaries and they're caught, you know, you can get her, I mean, she kept a diary during her first two years with Elvis, so it's kind of an interesting story. So yeah, there's a there's a bit of you know she she promoted herself a bit. Yeah, but it, I I would assume that if you're an Elvis biographer, you've got to be pretty happy that there's such a thing out there as that. Yeah, um, yeah, she had a lot of stuff, and so she got to know some of the biographers, you know, and was a source for for several of the books. So I'm interested, um, like how much you remember about the reception of the paper because it's it's a really remarkable document so i only read it yeah. the first time last week or so i i'd read um i mean the reason i found it was because i was reading a contemporary article that just came out by a leading child researcher named maria kansian um and in her she was giving a you know it's a long paper that involved the history of child support and she referred to that paper in particular as being really influential yeah, I was one of the first to really take on the subject. Um, and uh, before, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, men don't want to support their kids. Well, you know, that's their prerogative. Um, <laughs> and uh, they, my mom, I had nothing but headaches with my dad. My dad and my mom had, you know, I mean, war after war, you know, when it comes oh. to child support. And, and my dad was a problematic person, to say the least. And so... Um, I, I think she just uh, was not happy with the level of support she saw from the, the court system and how much she got away with. And uh, so that was kind of her emotional um, underpinning of wanting to write this. And Marianne was uh, uh, a researcher and was able to really, between both of them, get the facts about how um, nationally uh, dads were really not doing the country a favor. Uh, on many levels. So um, that's what got, that was the impetus to get them to do it. 
Uh, and I, yeah, I remember for a good year, year and a half, they had a lot of uh, attention paid to them because of this. I remember at one point, um, Steven Spielberg's mom came by and talked uh, to my mom, I, you know, and I, I was visiting. Um, and she, Spielberg's wife had, uh, Spielberg's mother, excuse me, had an interest in in this subject matter uh, from her own experience. And so, um, wow. yeah, it, it got a lot of attention. And personally, I, I'll just share this funny, I think it's funny anecdote story. So my dad, of course, didn't pay child support for me for a long period. And um, so with the paper coming out, um, we called the DA and they took us a little more seriously this time because, you know, so I remember the judge listened to my, my dad's uh, nonsense and uh, at the end of it, I remember I was sitting there and the judge said, Mr. Forsher, my father, Mr. Forsher, I gotta say I'm impressed with you. And my dad sat there, you know, and then, and then the judge said, not very favorably. <laughs> and then he read him the riot act and he said, no, you know, you're, you're uh, those whatever thousands of dollars that you owe need to be repaid. Um, and just to show you what it's like um, to not uphold the law, uh, you're going to spend the next week in jail. Wow. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> back of the court going, Oh, that paper had some effect on some people. And, uh, you know, so um, um, I think wow. that probably was repeated by many, many judges throughout the country who really realize that they're not doing anyone a favor by letting these dads just um, slip by. And, you know, if you have a kid, you have a responsibility. And a lot of men don't want to accept that or take that on. Yeah, I, th I think one thing that I'm really interested in also, especially because it's co-written and I feel like you can probably offer some insight into is like one thing that stands out about the report is it has a actually really strong voice yeah like something that you're expecting to come from the rand corporation in 1971 i at any rate was expecting this kind of uh very institutional flat voice um but it's it's a really very fun thing to read in its own way with little asides about there's a great well, aside. There's a reason there. you, you pick that up. And so the Rand Corporation, you know, they had government um, grant, uh, uh, I don't know, grants or, or, or contracts, and they would have to report, um, you know, information based on those contracts. This was different. This Marion worked for Rand as a researcher. And at the time, um, full-time employees at those positions could actually publish their own research uh, information or findings. So she didn't have someone over her saying, you can or can't do this, because she was one of those people. So uh, that's probably one reason why that report looks different than most RAND reports of the time. Yeah, I, I think it really does. Um... Like even just to speak to the same point you were just talking about judges, there's this line, many judges and lawyers find child support cases boring, and some are actually hostile to the concept of father's responsibility for children. Like that's a very like sharply written sentence. Um, from personal pretty experience. Pretty direct language. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's talking from personal experience, but what makes this different is they were able to back that up, that it wasn't just two people, but it was a whole country that was experiencing that. 
and I think I think there's a lot of pretty sophisticated argumentation here. Uh, they you know they're they're they don't take things like census numbers at face value. Um, they're they're acknowledging the limits of data around things like race and income level. I mean, they're they're trying to think, I think, really holistically about a problem, even if they end up kind of narrowing it for the affluent father part. But they're 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 you know, I think there's a lot of well, Marion, I, I Marion was an interesting person. She was um, I would say a brilliant um researcher. Um very, very serious. And um she was uh, an active member of Mensa. I mean, she was all, you know, this is a period where women were supposed to be just cleaning their house. And, I mean, we were still, you know, the beginning, the women's movement had not begun. Uh, but my mom and Marion were these two people that, you know, women can do a lot. And my mom, in terms of, of um, what she had done in Hollywood and her writings, and Marion in terms of research and, and really finding out the true facts. I mean, that, so... It was the marriage of those two um, talents that made this report kind of interesting. Yeah, I believe it. That's interesting to hear about her background. I did look a little bit, but I couldn't find anything like the. Yeah, yeah. She got sick later in life, and oh. so yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I could go through and just quote line after line here, but I think, um, but I think the main point is there. There's just a lot of um, there's a lot of continuity. Uh, really across some of these issues and a lot of thinking of the same things about, you know, people who can pay versus people who can't and trying to understand, you know, right. that there's, um, that we have to think about those differently. Um, clearly trying to register a lot of the seriousness of it. Well, you know, it brought up some very serious issues that needed to be talked about and explored. And it wasn't so much that the report said, well, this is what we should do. Um, it was more that we need to have the discussion of how we can solve this problem. And I think that's really where they, they left it because, I mean, every jurisdiction is going to have different answers depending on their needs. I mean, when you have an area of 90% uh, divorce in, in a poor area, that's going to be very different than Beverly Hills, you know, in terms of, of how to deal with it. Right. No, I think that I think that's really true. It does it, it does kind of lead you up to the policy questions. Yeah, and then you policy people <laughs> talk about it and figure this out. Right. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so and so after what what other kinds of things? So I feel like that's the part. Uh, like, what other things did she do? Did she continue with the um, production company? No, yeah. you know she. Um, um, kind of took a very strong right turn to social activism. Oh. Um, and she just said, you know, she she and Adolf gave it a few years and they both said oh, enough. And so she uh, got a job um, as a rabbi secretary. Oh. And after that, uh, then she kind of retired, retired. Uh, she had some um, thyroid issues, so she had a, a bit of a, a, a pension. So she... Um, got involved with the city of Los Angeles and she was on the human relations commission as an advisor. And she was involved with uh, the mayor Bradley and um, they were, you know, she became a certified do-gooder um, that, you know, that, and she just was, um, there's articles that you could find where she wrote promoting um, battered women's shelters. Um, 
And so she she spent probably the remainder of her life doing that and uh, being involved in the city. And I mean, you know, until she got Parkinson's later, I mean, she was going down to City Hall every week or two, you know, with some meeting to solve some problem or whatever. Wow, that's great. Uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe uh, in a later age, she would have not stopped at the policies point and gone through. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, no, I mean, she, um, she, I mean, I don't remember her taking that one on specifically um, any more than the paper, but uh, I think they did one other follow up paper that was tied to it. I, I don't yeah. remember the specifics of that, yeah. but most of it was, was really uh, her city and activities. Um, and, and being a commit um, a uh, human relations commission person. Oh, I sorry. I think I also said something about some relationship to like the Batman TV show, maybe. Yeah. Um, when she and Adolf stopped, you know, trying to produce because, you know, being a, a woman producer in Hollywood in the sixties was was kind of a, a tough one. And when Adolf's grandfather was still chairman of the board. There were some open doors, so KTLA at that time was owned by Paramount, and they could get shows and basically a phone call and be on KTLA. But that dried up when when Ginotri bought KTLA, and so um, she ended up going to 20th Century Fox and um, uh, stepping down in life, and you know, where she was publicist publicist, and now she was a, a studio secretary. So she worked on Peyton Place. And she worked on Batman. Those were two of the more famous shows. She worked on Daniel Boone, I think she worked on for a while. Um, but yeah, she did that until then. She went to the rabbi. And then she right. uh, went to went to her the real love of life, which was the uh, City Hall work. So how did you, it sounds like you, how did you get into your own interest in communication and yeah. uh, um, PhD? And well, like um. I you know I watched her her Hollywood years, and it, it kind of um, I found it um, uh, not so romantic, you know. I mean, just saw a lot of struggle, a lot of bats uh, backstabbing. I mean, it was um, so I didn't look at Hollywood the way a lot of people look at Hollywood. I just looked at Hollywood as this is not a nice place, and so I really wanted nothing to do with it. And then uh, when I was in college, I kind of fell in love with the idea of documentaries, which was very not Hollywood, um, and it was uh, telling stories in a, to me, in a much more forceful manner, or could be in a much more forceful manner. So um, when I graduated college, um, my mom and Adolf gave me a couple of, of uh, interviews that they had done and said, yeah, if you want to make some films, here's some material, go with it. And I said, okay. So one of them was the interview Conrad Hilton um, about how he created the Hilton Hotels. So my very first film, I was still in college, was um, I cut that into a half hour show. And so that kind of like, oh, I got a credit. And I like this. So the next one, which is kind of still pertinent today, is they gave me an interview that I was there also for, with Adolf Zucker, the grandpa of Adolf Zucker II, who started the American feature film industry, who co-founded Paramount Studios, uh, one of the first TV stations uh, created the star system. He was like the mogul's mogul, and um, he was around forever. I mean, he was still chairman of the board of Paramount in the 60s. He started Paramount in 1914, 15, co-founded. 
So he amazing story. And so we have a sit down interview with him. And um, long story short, um, they tried to sell that as a TV, big TV show. So there's a 1962 proposal they wrote. Uh, Bob Hope's writer had written a whole script that Bob Hope was going to host this. I mean, and they couldn't sell it. I mean, you know, um, and then they gave it to me. And so I said, well, this is a great story. So I um, took it on. I did a little PBS show locally, and I went, which was awful because I, this is a huge story. And I had no budget. and I tried. And then I went, I'm coming back to this, you know, when I have the resources. Well, I had a career that was kind of launched from that, but I ended up doing everything but that show because people would say, well, no one really knows about Adam Zucker, but do you want to do? And so that led to a lot of different shows over um, a 40-year career. Um, last, about two years ago, I said, no, nah, you know, I'm going to finish that. I think it's about time before I plots. I got to finish this. So uh, I started editing it together. And... Um, I got a um, fellowship to go to Hungary, which is where Zucker's from. And so I was in Hungary earlier this year um, doing interviews, research, talking to people, and um, uh, and edited and wrote and edited uh, the first part of the show. So after 50 years, this may go down in Hollywood as the longest pre-production in Hollywood history. Uh, it's actually going to be finished. Um, I'm, I'm doing the first, the final edit right now. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, uh, you know, it's determination. You know, it's it, you know, <laughs> if there's a project that's good, and it's, and it's a story that should be told because I mean, Zucker's hero journey is very interesting, but all the stuff he had to do to fight to make that happen—that's what really got me excited about the story. Wow, that's great. Um, so it's going to be kind of—is it? Are you imagining a feature-length documentary? Um, right now I'm cutting it. Uh, it. I'll be happy with an hour. It's probably going to go to film festivals uh, initially. Um, and that's kind of the way it works now with documentaries is it goes to a few film festivals. If enough cable channels or streaming channels, whatever, like it, they get in touch with my distributor and, you know, it gets yeah. sold. Uh, otherwise, I go to a couple festivals, get drunk a couple times and, and have a good time. Is there anything else you, any other things that's worth, you feel like I'm missing or want to cover? No, I think we, we covered my mom's um, okay. uh, bio um, pretty much. She lived about 80, you know, she, and she was a, a feisty woman, you know, and, uh, and always was. I think she was just born that way. Um, but um, the one thing that drove her um, was a thing called, uh, that she learned, very well from Colonel Parker. Colonel Parker believed in something called snow jobs. He And he called himself the chief potentate of the Snowman's League of America. And he, I think what he saw in my mom was she was really a snower too. So she actually had a, a, a snow, a snower uh, certification. Um, but she was all about what Colonel would do is um, confuse people, and then get what he needs. So for example, um, he's in a negotiation um, with Hal Wallace and Hal Wallace would say, well, we can't pay Elvis that much money. Colonel would take a big drag from a cigar and then start coughing and coughing and coughing and he's hitting the back and he's coughing. 
he wasn't coughing. He was giving himself about 15, 20 seconds to think this out and what he should say. And that was a Colonel Parker snow job. Um, and my mom really kind of embraced that whole philosophy that um, nothing is what it really appears to be. And you've got to kind of um, embrace that and uh, learn to try to get what you want um, despite the obstacles. And that's what snowing really was. Thanks again very much to James Forsher for joining us today and for sharing those stories with us. Thanks also to David Ram for leading the conversation and putting together a great episode. We'd love to hear from you and get your ideas and your feedback. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. News from the Peak is a project of Gray's Peak Strategies and is produced by Maureen Life, David Ram, Robert Riddle, and me. You can learn more about us at gracepeakstrategies.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Gray's Peak, and we're easy to find on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This was News from the Peak. I'm Joe Mamlin. Thanks for joining us. Podcast is, you know, it doesn't have the largest uh, listenership in the world, but um, they're willing to stick by us when we go on odd little jags here and there as well. Um, and I, Sorry, I, I, have, I have a dog who's demanding to be let in. Understood. Okay, come on. You, you must. I'm not playing with you. Okay, sorry about that. I don't close my own door. I don't, and I only have a cat, but the, yeah. the, the meows can. Yeah. Can kind of um, do what you want here. <laughs> Doors open, come, go. <laughs>
and he's a very good editor. 